Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, you're still here. <clears throat> 24 hours later, <clears throat> first day of a retreat. It's not easy. I would suspect that uh, many of you were wondering that question that I said last night, why did I sign up for this? Some of you might have had a, a really lovely day and you maybe you've had moments of, of both um, being really um, enjoying the quiet and maybe other times a little bit more challenging. But the beginning of a retreat settling in, uh, it, it takes a while to settle in. Uh, there are common experiences that uh, everybody goes through, as I, I've already mentioned. I'll just take a little bit of a uh, weather report here. How many people were sleepy during the day? Okay, yeah. How many people were restless or had moments where you just felt like you just needed some more space and activity? Okay. Uh, anybody have aches in the body? Uh-huh. Uh, anyone have a busy mind? <laughs> yeah. Great, you're just all right on schedule. <clears throat> Those are generally what most anybody goes through. And you're being, you come here and it's, it's such a, a shift from the way you live your life. You're being told, okay, now sit still, try not to move for one hour after another. Uh, now walk in a certain way. Now stay in this room, maybe with a roommate, but uh, a bed that you're not familiar with. You look at that schedule. Uh, where's the fun part? Um, and it's a bit daunting. Uh, and so at the beginning, it's almost guaranteed for many people to bring up resistance. I don't know if, um, if this is such a good idea or uh, well, what's the point of this anyway? Um, gee, maybe it would have been better to all kinds of places I could go in November or December, um, warm, sunny, laid back. Uh, um, so I want to talk tonight uh, about um, both the, the doubts that naturally arise in the mind and particularly um, the way that we um, set up ourselves for some kind of an ideal of how things might be happening or how we hope they're happening and then um, get into some kind of judgment about how either it's not happening or I'm not happening the way uh, I'd like it to be. I want to start off the talk by reading a passage, a, a favorite passage of mine from a, a wonderful book, one of the great classics, uh, Dharma classics of all time, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. Anybody read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind? A few people. Oh, good. It's a good one, isn't it? This is what he says. In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. 
That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of meditation practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding about practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it doesn't matter whether you're, one, whether you're the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion and sympathy for the worst one than for the best one. When you're determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you'll find that the worst horse is sometimes the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you'll find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Comforting, isn't it? Unless you sit in full lotus with no, no problem at all. Don't worry, there's hope for you yet, if you do. We have such a, a strong tendency of mind to compare ourselves with others or some kind of imaginary standards of what a good meditator would look like. And this creates a big problem for us, not just in setting up disappointment to unrealistic expectations, but it also keeps us in the trap of what the Buddha called the conceit of I am. This is a a classic phrase that he talked about a lot. In Pali, it's called mana, M-A-N-A, the conceit of I am. And what that means is this reifying, this sense of self that's separate from everybody else and then seeing how we are in comparison. The, the sense of um, not seeing through the, the, the interconnectedness and feeling separate. Now this conceit of I am, this tendency to compare and to judge and to separate ourselves out is very deeply ingrained in the human psyche. And in fact, something that you might find comforting, there are, in the classical Theravadan model, there are different stages of enlightenment, four stages of enlightenment particularly that are spoken of. Um, This is just one model, it's not the, the gospel, but it's one model to see how awakening happens. The fourth stage of enlightenment is a fully awakened being, what's called an an arhat. The third stage of enlightenment, which is pretty rarefied atmosphere, there's still this conceit of I am. So if you find yourself caught in comparing or judging, one way you can think of it is, Well, I'm no higher than third stage of enlightenment anyway. But you got a lot of company. This is another quote of the Buddha's around this conceit of I am. He says, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under these three conditions, for that person the notions 
equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from such views, there are no ties. But one who grasps after views and philosophical opinions such as these, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) And uh, you can probably guess who gets annoyed the most. This is what we create for ourselves. And I, I hope you notice that in that passage, the word conceit doesn't just point to this feeling of being better than. It's also in reference to being inferior or even equal to. Because, and it's nice to think, oh, all humans are created equal. That's a very beautiful, loving thought. But if it's me and everybody else out there, it's still creating this um, reified construct sense of self. So this is something to be aware of as you're going through, through the day. When does it happen for you? Have you seen it here in your practice today? seeing how everybody else is doing and how you're doing and either putting yourself somewhere in the, on the normal curve, either at the far ends or, well, I'm just kind of right in the middle, okay. Um, and it comes in so many different forms as you're going through the day. When does it happen for you? Just think when it might have happened today when you've seen it. You see everybody sitting in the hall and just looking like a Buddha and you are antsy or frustrated or going through some emotional stuff. Everybody is getting it but me. I can't sit still. Or if I only didn't have this pain in my shoulder, I would be really a good meditator. Or uh, social situations really comes up, like walking meditation. You are doing your walking and just maybe having an okay time, and you see somebody going really slowly. (laughs) You think, oh, he just told us to just enjoy, relax, because he doesn't think we're up to it. God, look at her. Jeez. I wish I could be like that. Or who are they trying to prove? You You see somebody else who might be walking naturally and you're trying to go slowly and say, gosh, they're just themselves. They're not trying to impress anyone. Or don't they get it? Why don't they slow down? The mind will just come up with anything at any time. Or in eating... Have you noticed in the, in the dining room, that's a very social situation, <laughs> rife with opportunities for the, the judging, comparing mind. You know. Look at how much food they put on their plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a bird. What, what, is, what does she think she is? A bird? Doesn't she eat any food? You know. Or, oh, how mindful... I'm, I'm eating right now. Mm. Check it out. Mm. Just tasting every morsel. Mm. Do you see? Do you see? Mm. Mm. Humbling, isn't it? Unless you can laugh at it, having a sense of humor is really helpful in doing this. Then you're in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke, right? I, on one retreat, I was, um, in my earlier days of practice, I I really did, I still do at times, but um, my early days, I really loved slow walking. It's fun. Uh, When you're, when you're, it takes a while to get into it, but when you get in that mode, it's like, um, you just, it's just, uh, it's so interesting to go slowly, you know. And when I'd be all by myself and I'd just be enjoying the, the slow walking and just noticing the subtle movements, lifting, moving, placing, 
lifting, moving, placing. Somebody else would come into the walking room and all of a sudden I'd have a whole different reason for walking. And I started to note, I would use mental noting and I'd be noting lifting, moving, looking good. Lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. You know, That was like my main note because that was what was going on. I know, looking good, looking good. I tried to say it kindly, but that was what was going on. And particularly in our culture here in the States, um, it's that much more um, valued to be number one. The, and there's a problem in that. In, in, uh, as I'm sure you know, in Australia, uh, they have this concept, the tall poppy syndrome. The tall poppy that sticks its head up. Look at me is the one that gets cut down. <clears throat> you, you don't win a whole lot of friends by trying to be superior to everyone. But we have this so deeply in our, uh, in our culture. You know, my city is the best city. My um, whatever it is, ethnic group, social class, um, music, you can name it. My basketball team, my basketball team is the best, but, uh, but we will let that go for another time. Um, and so, of course, there, it's going to be showing up in the, in the meditation as well. You, know, you can even get into comparing how messed up you are. When I was, when I was in college and I, was, I got into existential kind of looking at the world and uh, to be happy seemed so shallow, you know. <laughs> I am really deep because I am really screwed up. Yeah, you know, this was my little badge of, of honor, yes. You can, you can have anything comparing yourself against I'm, I'm, the, I'm the baddest guy in town or whatever it is. Or our looks, our appearance, our intelligence, our personality, um, it's so, so strong. So maybe just for a moment before I go on, uh, just to bring your own experience into, into this. I, I, won't, I won't ask for comments out loud, but just see when for you, how does it show up for you, whether it's in the meditation and uh, just being here or in your life, what areas do you find yourself caught in the comparing mind? And what would it be like if that wasn't having power over you? If you were okay just the way you were You truly accepted yourself just as you are in this particular sphere that's, that's perhaps a um, sensitive spot. The freedom that could come from that. Okay, you can open your eyes. And I share this with you not so that you can judge yourself one more time. Oh yeah, and all that judgment too on top of the way I don't measure up. I share it with you so you can hold it with great compassion and to see that you are not alone in this. And the reason I wanted to give this talk, just thinking particularly about connecting the, the mind and heart, the theme for this retreat. You know, we've talked about a kind awareness and uh, it really is the basis for clarity and understanding to hold whatever pain and 
habits of mind that don't serve us to hold them with great kindness and compassion. So as we explore this together, just to know we each have our own sensitive areas until you're fully enlightened and to just see as you see your own predicament you can feel that connection and compassion with everybody else who has their own particular expression of it it's not you're not immune to it no matter if you've been practicing for many years or even uh, sitting up in front and giving a, a dharma talk you know, it can be it can be that way for anyone. When I was when I was first starting out and giving giving talks, um, this is in the eighties, early eighties. I um, I'd be on these big retreats. We'd have a big retreat down at Yucca Valley um, each spring, which we still do. Um, and I'd be giving. I'd be on the team with. The superstars, Joseph Goldstein, I don't know if, if you're not familiar with these names, then just uh, these are uh, really the most respected names in, in our uh, teaching community. Joseph Goldstein, who was my teacher, uh, would give a talk and just so deep and so clear and just blow everyone's mind. Then Jack Cornfield, who I'm sure most of you know, would give a talk and he'd weave this spell over the room you know just wow you know Sharon Salzberg who wrote the classic book on loving kindness she'd give a talk and people would be weeping as they as their hearts open you know and then I'd have to give the talk the next night and I knew if I was in the room in the other side of the 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 stage I'd be saying Get that guy off and get Goldstein back on, you know. And it was really, it was hard. It was painful. I went to um, one of my uh, my other mentor teacher, Ramdas, who really got me into this whole thing. And I, after reading Be Here Now, how many people have read Be Here Now here? Okay, good. A book that changed my life. And uh, I and he was he still is an important teacher and mentor for me, and I said, you know, this is really painful. I'm I open up my mouth and I just you know I'm not I'm not Joseph Goldstein and uh, and you know I don't know. And he said he gave me some really good advice. He said, you know, Joseph Goldstein's already taken. Why don't you just be the best? Jamie Barras, you can be. I went by Jamie in those days. You might find that you know he he has something to say too, and uh, that was the start of starting to of, of beginning to see. Oh, we all have our own gifts to give, but this is something that all of us deal with. This is, in fact, let me read a a passage that you might enjoy. This is from Ajahn Sumedho who is the really one of the most highly respected Theravadan monks. He's the senior Western Theravadan monk, monastic, and he, all the um, Amaravati and uh, Abhayagiri up in, um, up in Ukiah and uh, uh, the Ajahn Chah uh, lineage of monasteries, Ajahn Sumedho, um, really... Uh, um, was the the person who who established that he and he was Jack Cornfield's like big brother when when Jack first came to uh, study with Ajahn Chah. So this is what he says. <clears throat> when I was young, I was very self conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say "I, I, sir" in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all the self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Samedo, you can give good Dhamma. 
Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment and self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain. But three hours, and he knew. Now with Ajahn Chah, I always felt if he'd said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. (laughs) And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. (laughs) Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at the self-consciousness the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of the past 15 years. This is many years ago when he gave this talk. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of self-view And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So this conceit of I am, this sense of separating ourselves out, it's rooted in some way or another in fear of being not enough. If we know we're enough, then we can just be ourselves. And I'm sure that there are times in your life when you're just enough who you are. It's not to say that this is all the time that you're feeling inadequate if that's something that comes up with you. Probably around the friends who love you, the people who, who just, you know, see your goodness and your wholeness, the people that you're not trying to impress. You ever notice that when someone is trying to impress, it's not very impressive. And when they're just themselves, then it allows you to be just yourself. But when that somehow that activation of not enoughness comes, then, then we're lost in this comparing mind. And it's very, very painful, this feeling of unworthiness or non-enoughness. <clears throat> There's a, a line in um, The Course in Miracles that says, uh, it's a beautiful um, Christian uh, uh, body of wisdom. It says, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. And I, I went through something like this um, when I did a, a, a long retreat. Uh, uh, in 1979, I did um, a three-month retreat. I, it was my second three-month retreat. I had done one a few years before and um, at the end of the retreat or near the end the Dalai Lama came to um, to visit the center in Massachusetts a great way to end a retreat by the way you know <laughs> he had just come to the states for the very first time in nine, just a couple of months before in 79 and he came to visit all the yogis 
And, um, you know, it was really, what, a, what an amazing honor. And uh, he had a, a Q&A period. And one guy raised his hand and he said, um, Your Holiness, um, do you have any advice for, um, for self-hatred and for self-loathing? And the translator explained the question, but it, the Dalai Lama didn't get it at first. He, he didn't quite understand... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he didn't quite understand the concept of self-hatred. And it went back and forth, back and forth, until finally um, he got it. And he said, he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine sitting for two and a half months and the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> but he said it with tremendous compassion. And he said something like what I got from it. What makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of this universe and somehow you're not good enough? You're, you're really, this is a, a real misunderstanding. This is a powerful moment for me. So I want to talk a bit about how this comparing mind comes about and also some of the um, ways that we might use to work with it, particularly when it comes towards ourselves. And as we're trying to make friends with ourselves, we see all the things that get in the way of that. <clears throat> so one way to think of how this is created um, can be uh, found in the Buddhist teaching on what a human being is. One way to think of, of this human form um, is uh, called the five aggregates or the five skandhas or in Pali the five khandhas which means this mind-body process that people call James um, is really made up of this form, this body, doing all the things that this body does, all on its own. I'm not saying, come on now, pump the blood, you know, digest the food. It just happens all on its own. This body, this form, and then four other components of mind, which include feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates or five components of human experience. One, the physical form, and four, mental forms. Feeling, in this case, isn't emotions, but it's the fact that every moment has a, a flavor of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. That's just the flavor of experience that in every moment um, we, are, we are taking in and having some um, flavor. This is, this is a pleasant moment. This is an unpleasant moment. Usually with this is a pleasant moment I want. This is an unpleasant moment I don't want. Feeling, perception, which is recognizing our experience. It's like we have this en enormous hard drive in our brains that says, oh, this is a glass. Oh, this is a fairly big glass. Oh, this is a glass of water. Mm. Not too hot, not too cool, because I'm remembering all the other water that I've tasted and all the other glasses I've seen, and it files it away and says, oh, I know what this is. We call this glass. And so it is recognizing, continually recognizing our experience. From that feeling and perception, then there's mental formations. We have thoughts, sorry, thoughts and emotions about 
whatever we're experiencing or about the past or the future. It's just, have you noticed the mind just keeping on coming up with stuff? How does it come up with all that stuff? How many thoughts have you had today? Just imagine how many, where'd they come from? I used to ask that to every meditation teacher the first few years. Where do thoughts come from? Nobody gave me a good answer. How many different feelings have you had? How many different moods have you had? Maybe you've had one, uh, but maybe you've had a bunch. Where do they come from? Just all on their own. So that's this mental formations. And then there's a consciousness that knows, oh, that is registering our experience continuously. So that's the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. The perception one, the one that recognizes and files away, the function of it is to recognize in relation to others. So we see a human being and we say, oh, that's a tall human being. Oh, that's a short human being. That's a curly-haired or straight or whatever. It's just observing. It's not that it's bad. But when it comes into that's a better human being because it's taller, that's already creating something extra. Or, gee, I wish I had straight hair like that. Or curly hair. Or whatever it is. You know, you go from one culture to another, it'll change greatly depending upon the conditioning. <clears throat> now you go out into the forest and you see lots of different trees and you might see a tall, straight tree and you might see uh, a, an old gnarled tree with lots of character and you might see small saplings. And Do you say, too bad that tree is gnarled. If it were only straighter, it would be better. You don't do that, do you? Uh, maybe you do, but I, I don't. You know, It's just, oh, there's so many different kinds of trees. So many different kinds of flowers in this meadow. And each one is unique and each one belongs. But when it comes to us, it's a different story. And this is where we create a lot of problems for ourselves. So, how to work with the fact that this comparing mind separates ourselves out as somehow not being as good or better than or even uh, somehow separate from. So a few um, pointers on working with it. The first is to have tremendous compassion and forgiveness for this habit of mind. If you take it personally, it's going to be really painful. And you, you um, do what the Buddha taught uh, as adding a second arrow on top of the first. This is his teaching on the two arrows or two darts. One is, um, for instance, you might say, oh, I, my, my mind is all over the place. It's painful. Second arrow is, I am such a pathetic meditator because my mind is all over the place. Or my, um, uh, I stub my toe ouch, that hurts. And then, what a klutz I am. That's the second arrow. Okay. You don't have to add the second arrow. You stub your toe, those things happen. And if you had a, a child stub her toe, would you say, hopefully not, <laughs> <laughs> you klutz, you know. If she's hurting, you'd probably say, come here, dear, let me hold you. Right. 
or somebody who's giving herself a hard time because she's not good enough, would you say, get off it, kid? No. You want that child to know, it's okay, you're just fine, just the way you are. That's the natural response we would have to most anybody else. But somehow, when it comes to us, we don't give ourselves that same, not only benefit of the doubt, that same kindness. And this is what we're learning here this week, that the more you can give yourself what you would give to everybody else, the more you're truly getting who you are. And then all of the beauty can shine through you. So one way to practice forgiveness, I'll share with you a a simple uh, method that you can use throughout the the retreat. Uh, Maybe I'll give you two variations of it. One is um, in holding our difficulties with compassion um, is the mindful self-compassion break. Um, And this comes from uh, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer who sit retreats with with us here at Spirit Rocket and IMS who've packaged very effective um, presentation of kindness towards yourself. And they have a lot of research that backs it up. And you know, when you've got research, then, then people say, oh, okay, maybe I'll try that too. Uh, but it's basically Dharma practice just packaged in a very effective way. So here's the mindful self-compassion break that you can use as much as you want. I, I don't think you can overdo it, particularly if you're giving yourself a hard time. Okay, so for this, I'd like you, if you want to do it, sit up so you're here for it. Unless you're going through some physical um, difficulty. And actually, it's generally, I should, I don't know if it's been mentioned, but generally for for a Dharma talk, uh, unless you're going through physical difficulty, it's just out of respect for the Dharma. You don't have to sit up stiff, but just to sit up. But try this now that I've got you in this upright position. Okay, so suppose you're going through hard time and bes- it's, it's more than you can just be mindful of. Then you need to hold it. Here's the, here's the um, four-step process, at least the way I like to do it. First, put your hand on your heart. And this physiologically releases oxytocin and uh, stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, that, uh, that compassionate response inside of you. And maybe as you, you can close your eyes as you do this. And just notice first, I'm, I'm going to slow down so you see each step of the process, but just notice first how it feels to just put your hand on your heart and soothe yourself. It's a physiologically powerful support. And you don't even have to do anything beyond this. This is, this is powerful just in itself. But they have a three-step um, reflection. And I'll say it, and you can have your own variation of it. Maybe I, I can put it up on the board too. First, oh, this is a moment of suffering. Or you might say, oh, this is really hard right now. And to just acknowledge what you're going through. Oh, this is hard. Second reflection, suffering is a part of life. And you might reflect on the commonality of experience and maybe all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through right now. Whether it's a difficult emotion or a body that's hurting or whatever. Oh yeah, suffering is a part of life. And include everybody in the world in your compassion. You're not so alone.
And then the third reflection, may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. Or may I hold my pain with kindness. Just wish that for yourself. And take in that comforting wish. You can be the, the little one that's in need of comfort. And you're also the wise one that's comforting right through your hand that knows just what you need. So it's a kind of coming into wholeness You're both the one receiving and the one giving. This is suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness. Just notice how that feels. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like right now. Very simple. It's just giving yourself what you would give most anyone else and seeing, oh yeah, I, I'm going through a hard time. I deserve this. I deserve this kindness. So that's one, one way to bring about some compassion and forgiveness. One that I did, I've shared for many years it was my main practice for two years it was my own variation of the the self-compassion break um when i'd see because i i could see i had i have and particularly in earlier years had a really big judging mind you know even bigger than yours i bet And I really, I saw, I, I'll, I need to work with this. And um, this is what I did at some point. I, I could hear when I'd be in the judgment, I'd just be scolding myself, you know, you know. Oh, there's my, like I was saying this morning, oh, there's my mind wandering again. And then I'd notice, oh, judging. I said, oh, darn it, I just did it again. Another judgment, judging Judging, 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 judging. There was no way out. Until I realized at some point, oh, maybe I could have a different relationship to the judging. And so this is what I did. I invite you to just try this. And close your eyes. And suppose you just have a big judging thought. And now take your hand and Put it on your cheek and as if you were the wisest, kindest, most compassionate being as you caress your cheek silently saying to yourself, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, dear, judging. And let yourself just feel the tenderness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Could you feel it? That's how I recommend you notice the judging. And it wasn't like I did this each time. Like I said, it was my main practice both on retreat and off for about two years. When I'd forget, actually, I would touch myself. But after a while, the tone of the voice became that compassionate one. And as long as I was naming it that way, then any time I had a a judging thought, oh, great, a chance to practice more compassion. So instead of feeling discouraged, oh, one more neural pathway. I wasn't thinking in those terms in those days. Oh, one more uh, neuron firing, uh, one more practice of compassion. And that was, I was just really determined to, to, to change it around. And if somebody told me it was possible to, to be kind to myself when I started this, I would have said, I don't know about this lifetime. 
Because I was really hard on myself. I didn't like myself very much. That's why I was so motivated to, to practice so earnestly when I first was exposed to the teachings. So that's one, one strategy to bring about that compassion and kindness. Another mm, uh, practice attitude is seeing through those thoughts, seeing how empty they are. The mind just creates these thoughts and then believes them. And when you, that's one of the reasons why we're sitting here and we're just noticing all of these thoughts coming and going and as best we can not jumping on the thought train. Because that's what we usually do. We have a, a pleasant thought, ah, I'm feeling good now. We have a, a worrisome thought. Oh, uh oh, the world is dangerous. And whatever thought comes through our mind, often we're subject to its power and believing it. But when you sit and you keep seeing all these thoughts coming and going and coming and going out of nowhere, then you start to see oh, I don't have to believe my thoughts. That's where the real freedom is. Not getting rid of your thoughts. Not wiping all thought out. I used to think when I started out this, when, if I was really doing it right, it'd be like this giant vacuum cleaner would come and just suck all the thoughts out and I'd be blank. Don't wait for that to happen. That's not the point. You don't have to get rid of any thought. Just see it for what it is. It's just uh, the Tibetans have this beautiful... Um, uh, phrase that if you don't mess with thoughts, they self-liberate. They just unwind on their own. Just you can have any thought in the world. And it was really uh, a, a shift in my practice when I realized I don't really have control over my mind. Now you might think that's discouraging, but it's great news. Because if I don't have control over my mind, I don't have to blame myself for any thought that comes through. Do you say, I could go for some rage right now? No, it just comes, you know. Oh yes, how about some self-doubt? That would be good for me. It just comes all by itself. So to see, the one thing you do have control over is to start understanding how empty thoughts are. Here's a little a little exercise. I'm going to say two words and just notice your experience. Close your eyes for a moment. First word. Trouble. Trouble. Notice what goes on inside. Maybe some images that you might have. How it feels in your body, your mind. Trouble. I won't leave you here. Take a nice breath, clean the board, come back to your feeling your body, and I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice what it what it's like inside. Kindness. The associations, the feelings. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice any difference? Between the two? Two words not related to anything, complete non sequiturs, out of my mouth, plopped into your consciousness, and there's a whole reaction probably. Can you imagine what happens if you keep on hitting the play button over and over? That rotten SOB, he really did. And you play it over for days, weeks, Months, sometimes years, that rotten, it's that tape. If you don't see that you've just created a problem for yourself, that person might be on Hawaii, you know, having a, just a wonderful vacation and you just triggered yourself. So to see how empty those thoughts are is really one of the main things that we're doing here. Just in trying to pay attention, you notice. Joseph, my teacher, has a very simple, effective 
uh, way to hold this. He says, if you're sitting in a room with other people and meditating together and you're bothered by your thoughts, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> Very effective, you know. No problem at all. You know, oh, I hope they get over it, you know. <laughs> Who knows where those thoughts come from? So that's another thing, seeing the emptiness of those thoughts. Another is having a sense of humor about it, which is another way to create some space and not take it personally. Uh, and I, I mentioned that a, a little before. Um, on, on one retreat, uh, one of these longer retreats, I was um, uh, at IMS and I was working with the judging mind and I picked this uh, couplet from my favorite piece of Dharma wisdom, the Third Zen Patriarch, uh, verses on the, uh, on the faith mind. Uh, lots of brilliant lines. This is the one that starts out, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences and goes on and on and on. And he has this, he says this one couplet, he says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And I said, that makes sense to me. I can relate. And so every time I'd notice a judging thought, I'd just tack on a reminder, the burdens of practice of judging, just to kind of get a little space. So I'd be particularly, say, in, in the dining room, you know, oh my goodness, going for a third portion, the burdens of practice of judging, you know. And I would say it, it became this amazing practice because I'd go through a meal and I'd say that 50, 75 times at least, you know. Oh, how am I doing now? The burdens of practice of judging, you know. And after a while, the only thing I could do was laugh. You know. Wow. Just continuous, incessant Oh, yeah. And if you have a choice to beat yourself up or laugh at this insane mind, I suggest going for the latter. Then you're in on the joke. It's just the mind doing its thing. So that's a, a, another really powerful practice. Something else is being kind to yourself and seeing who you really are. And I, for this, go over just a touch. I want to share with you a, a loving kindness practice towards ourselves. We'll be doing, we did some loving kindness today. Here's another loving kindness, way to do the loving kindness towards self. Did you do self today? Uh, what's that? Okay, so... This, we'll, we'll be doing this, uh, variations of this. And starts the, the, the traditional, you start with loving kindness towards yourself. Then you include more and more. Self or benefactor, and then you include more and more. So, and you're, you're saying phrases over and over and just programming yourself. And I was doing a six-week period of, of um, heart practices at, at, uh, at IMS. First week was for myself. And I was saying, you know, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, and may I be peaceful, over and over, just those four phrases. And it was going okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. I wasn't giving myself that a hard a time. By the third day, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. And I thought, this would be so much easier if I could see what they see. And then I said to myself, well, what do they see? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I hit upon this little practice that was a huge shift in my own personal metta practice I want to share with you to, to, to close. So close your eyes for a moment. And bring to mind someone who you share a lot of warm, loving energy with. It can be a pet, your dog or your cat. It can be a child. It can be a friend. Anyone 
who there's just a very sweet connection with. And imagine they're right here in front of you, maybe smiling back at you saying, oh, thank you for picking me. And feel that sweet flow between you first and just enjoy that. And now for a moment, imagine that your consciousness can move through space and inhabit their reality and look through their eyes and see who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy being with you? Maybe your playfulness or your kindness or your other qualities. Just notice all the qualities that touch them about you. And see if this person, their friend, deserves kindness and happiness. Maybe from their perspective, just wish that for yourself. It's probably what they wish for you. May you really see all the goodness inside of you. See what I see. May you be really happy. And now let your consciousness shift back and inside, from the inside, stay, stay connected to all of those things that your friend sees. And from the inside, wish yourself well. Oh, may I stay connected to all of those qualities. May I see all the goodness inside and, and share, share it well. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. And if, that, if you didn't connect with that, then just hold it with kindness anyway. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you're... Uh, it just means that right now you aren't able to feel it. But if you could feel just even a touch of what your friend sees, then you can't pretend anymore that you're not worthy of it. So that's, that might be something that you play around with in that comparing mind, just seeing you're enough. Because, you know, when I, when I had that experience in, the, um, uh, in my own practice, when I saw myself through my friend's eyes, it wasn't like, oh, you are the most amazing human being in the world. It was just, you know, you're okay. That was it. You know, you're really a decent guy. That made all the difference in the world. Oh, I'm really okay? I can stop hoping that people will see that I'm okay or maybe fool them or whatever. So once you know you're okay, then you can stop being so preoccupied with trying to impress everyone or letting them tell you that you're okay then you can relax and actually see who's there. Oh, oh, who's out there anyway? It's so interesting how we don't see ourselves. Albert Einstein has this expression, an optical delusion of consciousness. We live in an optical delusion of consciousness. If you met somebody who really enjoyed your sense of humor and liked your take on things and understood your perspective and, and like, liked your taste, really got you, how would you feel about meeting that person? Wouldn't it be great? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? <laughs> so part of this practice is getting to see who you really are. And it, it ultimately is good news. So when the comparing mind comes up and you really start 
working with it and seeing through it, you see there's really no comparing. There's no comparison. You are just the perfect expression of life as it is. And I'll close with this poem, my favorite poem, my favorite poet, uh, Dana Fald's Awakening Now. She says, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons, the beloved meaning life itself? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold. You say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection, perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for just a moment. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. for your attention. Have about uh, 20 minutes or so for walking and we'll come back for one last sitting and uh, I'll share another little uh, treat at the end to tuck you in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.